I think Greenfire was like a wildly bootstrapped business. And we didn't necessarily know that at the time. But looking back on it, we raised $2.2 million from investors over three rounds of, of investment. And that $2.2 million, you know, 13 years later, had snowballed into nearly $1.1 billion of enterprise value. And that strikes me as being like one of the most extraordinary storylines in that in that journey that never really gets talked about. Like that's insane. And there are other examples of, of that type of call it capital efficiency, but in like today's world that's like pretty few and far between. Dive into the stories behind Philly's most exciting startups, Founding Philly, a podcast about the innovators, founders, and builders who are shaping the Philly startup scene. And here's a short word from our sponsors. Brinker Simpson & Company is a highly respected, full-service regional accounting and business advisory firm. Known for being a great place to work and build a career, Brinker Simpson provides audit, tax, and advisory services for organizations in today's most important industries. Are you looking for a refreshing CPA experience? Check out Brinker Simpson and Company online at BrinkerSimpson.com. Sam, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Was really excited about this episode with you and discuss your journey and building in Philly. So thank you so much for joining. To kick things off, would you mind just doing a quick introduction and then we can go from there? Thanks for having me. I'm Sam Whitaker. Grew up in Philadelphia, founded a few businesses. First one was Greenfire, which is still around today, headquartered in King of Prussia. Founded a second business that didn't work out. I'll blame that on COVID, but it's never quite that easy, which was outside of the clinical research space. It was called Groovy Car. I still think was a good idea, but we shut that down before we got to a proof of concept, which I thought was also like a great learning experience. And then in January of 2022, I started building Neural Health, which is another clinical trials technology business that is essentially a continuation of the product work that I started doing at Greenfire. And in my view, represents kind of a next generation clinical trial participant payment and management technology platform. And you said clinical trial payment participant process? Yeah. So the the, the tech that we've, we've built inside of our, our platform from Mural Health uses the payment process that is performed to deliver payments to participants in clinical trials, so patients and caregivers. We will get payment to those individuals from ultimately the sponsor of the clinical trial. So think of it like the pharma company could be a biotech or medical device company, but we use that payment delivery as a strategic hook to bring participants into our environment and deliver them other features that they otherwise wouldn't be motivated to engage with. And all of those features, and this is kind of where the product continuation work begins. All of those features are meant to directly impact the ability for patients and caregivers to participate in trials. And we have a theory that if we can make it easier for people to participate in trials, we will be able to add a whole lot of value to the clinical research study. It sounds super interesting. I want to get into all of that, but before we jump in, I want to hear more about your background, how you ended up bounding to clinical payment companies and being in that clinical research space, how you ultimately ended up being in that. So you mind just share a little bit more about your background, how you ultimately ended up there? Yeah. So when I went to college, I went to Penn, I wanted to go to medical school. As part of my effort to try and make it to medical school, I started doing work-study jobs at the, the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. One of those roles was essentially as an assistant site coordinator in the OBGYN department. And I was helping to execute a clinical research study that was studying the efficacy of a a new contraceptive device. As part of that, we were making payments to all the participants. And then I was also transcribing paper diaries into Excel spreadsheets, which were essentially what we now would call ePro if it was electronic, but it was patient reported outcomes, essentially. 
that was how I was initially exposed to clinical research. I didn't end up going to medical school and somehow in, in kind of this roundabout way, I ended up finding my, myself as a product manager at a, a payments company called eCount, which was a startup that back in 2007 was sold to City and has continued on under a whole bunch of different names. I think today it's called Onbee and it's still, I think still based in Conchopping. Anyway, when I was a product manager, I, I ended up coming up with a list of a, a bunch of new products. One was clinical trials or a uh, product to help distribute payment to people in clinical trials. But eCount was uh, of the opinion that it was too difficult and they weren't interested in clinical trials. And I had a theory that if we created a payments company that was specific to an industry, um, we could do more than just move money from point A to point B and create additional value. And that's how I would have described it back in 2007. Today, like payments nerds would call it a vertically integrated payments company. And this dynamic exists across other industries where payments companies get integrated or, or embedded into industry specific softwares and then they can help to drive additional value. When there, but there was like a moment in time when something switched in my brain and I decided that I was going to start a, a company. And I can remember like the, the exact minute that it happened uh, where there was no going back. And I, then I had to figure out, you know, what kind of payments company was I going to create? And I, my brain went back to clinical trials. At the time, my, my wife, Jennifer, who was one of the co-founders of Greenfire, was a salesperson selling translation tech and services to pharma companies and clinical trial companies, just coincidentally. And so a little bit of this was a matter of me, like, I like to think of entrepreneurs as like chefs that walk into a kitchen and open up their drawers and find whatever ingredients exist and then figure out something to make based on the ingredients that they have to work with, as opposed to how I like affectionately think of like MBA, like kind of graduates as people that would like walk into the kitchen with a recipe and then go around and collect the ingredients and make the, the dish. So for me, it was like, well, I can get introductions from my, my wife, who's a great salesperson. And I know about, um, uh, clinical trials a bit from this like very brief and superficial experience that I had. And then the other checkbox that we were hoping to knock off was we, we didn't want to create a product that other people were doing. So we wanted to be the first and essentially invent something that hadn't been done. And nobody had created anything for clinical trials or tried to manage payments using tech. And so that was all we needed. And we, we set off. So it was me and Jennifer and my longest friend, JP Samar. How long were you at eCount until you decided that you wanted to actually go on this journey? So JP was actually working at eCount at the same time. He came about a month after I started, also worked in the product group in a different function. And I'd say it was probably like three weeks after he started that we started talking about how building a payments platform didn't seem that hard. And we were young and naive and it was a lot harder than we thought it was at the time. But that's when we started talking about it. But it wasn't for another, call it two or three months until I had that moment, which was like October 20, 2007, where I had the moment where I decided that like there was no going back. Although it did take another six months before I quit my job at eCount to start working full-time on Greenfire. And then JP quit a month later. And going back to that, when you were saying vertically integrated payment systems, explain that a bit more. So when you're at eCount, you're seeing it could add value to the payment experience. But what does that really mean, a vertically integrated payment system? So... The idea I think came like originated when I was thinking through a rebate product that existed at eCount. Maybe it still does. And at the time there was like, you would send in your proof of purchase to some address. And then there was another company that would receive those and validate that your purchase qualified for a rebate. And then they would construct a payments file and send it to eCount. So these are two separate companies that are involved in figuring out what's due to who and how much. And then they pass, the, the one company passes that information to the payments company. The payments company executes payment. And then 
back then, at least their revenue model, not just for e-count, but all, all the payments businesses was volume driven. So you, you get like a, a dollar or something relatively small. You do a lot of volume and you generate, you know, you scale your revenue up. Originally, my idea was like, Hey, why don't we either start or buy acquire the company that's receiving the proof of purchase, put that together in a single offering? and see if we can drive some additional value. And so that was like kind of like a, I don't know if that would have been beneficial, but that's where the idea of like doing more than payments and, and doing something specific to an industry kind of started to grow in my mind. Vertically, like vertically integrating a payments business in clinical trials. So this was true with the ClinCard, which was the, the first product I created at Greenfire, and also true of Mural Link, which is the platform we're building now. We do execute payments in both of those examples, but we also do more than that. So the ClinCard was originally designed to help to automate workflows. So figuring out what is due to participants, how much, managing approval processes if they needed to be managed, and inevitably trying to get the individual paid as they left the, the research site or their visit. Whereas in the past, it was took four to six weeks typically in order to get a check. So that ends up creating a bunch of value in the form, at least in clinical research. And, and this was the original like kind of product idea was that we were going to deliver the payment, right? But we were also going to improve the experience of the, the participant and reduce administration at the research site, which hopefully will make research sites more efficient, give them the ability to focus more on the actual research. And then also prevent dropout from the patient population by making their experience easier. So I used to tell customers when we were in sales meetings, like if I was talking to you, I would say like, when you submit a reimbursement to your employer, do they usually take like six weeks to get you that payment back? Or if you complete a week's worth of work, does it take you six weeks to get paid for that? And usually the answer would be no. And people typically wouldn't tolerate that type of delay. But ultimately, this helps to keep the trial moving, improves the quality of data, and then creates value in the clinical R&D process for the sponsor. Right. I imagine there's similar dynamics that exist in other industries. This one seems like a, I mean, this is the kind of the compelling value add. So it really is around that entire payment experience for the participants in the clinical trial. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is like the tactical improvement of delivering payment. And then the other part of driving more value is to figure out what features you can put in place around that payment to get uh, kind of the desired human behavior that you're trying to encourage. So you built this initially at Greenfire 15 years ago. You built it, developed it, more successful, right? And sold it. I, th I think you said you had three exits with that throughout its life cycle. So I obviously want to hit on Mural Health, but before we do get to that, right, I do want to hear more about this. It was a very successful exit for the team. So I want to just make sure we hit on that experience. So you're leaving eCount as a young entrepreneur with one of your closest friends. Your wife today, right, was one of the co-founders as well. When you started Greenfire, what was that initial three months like? Were you building a product? Were you trying to partner with health systems that were doing these clinical trials in hospitals, right? What were those original three, six months like starting Greenfire? Oh man, that is like a funny thing to reflect on. I was telling somebody today in a call that we were having that I like joked that when we first started Greenfire, when JP and I showed up for like the first day of work, it was in my home in Fairmount. And we used this, this office, this room that didn't have any heat. And it was like March. So it was cold, like it was colder than I expected it to be. And we were both uncomfortable. And JP, we, we got desks from Jennifer's, like hand-me-downs from Jennifer's company. But one only had three legs. And I gave that to JP because I was like, well, it's my house, so I get the desk. <laughs> and I remember he used, like if he put too much like weight on one corner, it would like basically fall over. And I was sitting there with like, you know, he made me buy like the cheapest computer too, because he, you know, he, yeah, he, he was super lean. This is like, I think like lean startup was coming out like just around the time, but we were, we were trying to be super bootstrapped, but I was like sitting there thinking like, oh my God, what do we do? Like, how do we, how is this going to work? Right. And I was always like the, 
the optimist. But like the first three months was a lot of us trying to figure out, you know, we had like some, some clues on how to build a payments company or a platform. And then we just started following our leads basically. And, and we spent the first year building and we had some pretty devastating setbacks during that time. Uh, but we like, you know, I think that we also like didn't know what we were doing. And I think that that actually was really helpful because we didn't have any sort of like sophisticated history to like refer back to and, and think like, oh, we need to hire, you know, outsource team in India in order to develop stuff in a cost-effective way. We hired a unpaid intern from Drexel named Candice, and she was kind enough to build us our first corporate website. We hired a, I think we paid Daryl, who was the engineer that built the first version of the ClinCard application. He was a student at Penn. Now he's a CEO of some nerdy company in Washington, I think. And one way or another, we like cobbled it together. We had hardly any money at the time. And this was like leading up to the financial crisis that happened at the end of 2008. We ended up financing the first year with zero, zero percent balance transfer credit card offers, which was JP's idea. We applied to like a dozen of them or 15 of them at the same time online. I don't know if that you can still do this today, but uh, we did it at the same time so that each one of them queried JP's credit because my credit sucked back then at the same time. So they couldn't see that the other applications were coming in. And then we got like $80,000 of 0% debt, you know, 0% for like nine to 12 months. So we figured, yeah. we figured, Hey, if it doesn't work out, JP's credits destroyed, but <laughs> you know, there's plenty of time for him to build that back up. So when, when I think about building a payment processing company, especially in the clinical trials, the data that's used, the participants, just the healthcare system in general, seems pretty complex. So you three starting out with the different players that you had to help on the team, what is even that first step? Like finding a big time partner, who was that first partner that was crazy enough to, to help you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We definitely weren't really in touch with how sensitive this space was. We were really just heads down focusing on the athletics of building a startup. So can we build a product? Can we design a product, then sell it and just live another six weeks? Basically like, you know, can we keep the lights on and then do it again? And so when, when we were getting ready to launch the very first version of that application, we ended up essentially pitching another company, the product as their retention strategy. So it was a patient recruitment company who was like, you know, 25 or 30 million bucks at the time in revenue. So like, you know, not, I wouldn't call them a startup. They were, they were, they had existing relationships and we were saying, Hey, why don't you use this as your retention product? And at the time, nobody really had any sort of tech driven retention strategy. And so this was like a sexy differentiator for them. And the customer didn't necessarily, wasn't like painfully aware that it was like two dudes in a unheated room with <laughs> dysfunctional tables or, or desks. Like they thought that they, it was this other company was like essentially the storefront. So this is how we thought of it at the time. Like now we know this to be, we meaning, you know, adult versions of ourselves know this to be an indirect channel sale, right? So this was like our way of getting around like the vendor qualification that typically would be done by any large pharma company. The first customer was Medtronic. So super giant medical device business. And it was a spine study that we worked on. And then the next two studies that we sold were to large pharma and then a European biotech, both done through other patient recruitment companies. So now all of a sudden you've got three studies and you've got experience and you can create, you know, what I think of now is probably like vanity metrics to start to give others confidence that they can trust you. Right. So we're, we're, we support this many sites and patients and studies and in these, this, these countries. Right. And, and all of that was true, but you know, you kind of, as like a, I think as an entrepreneur in a startup, you know, especially in that space, you're, you're trying to like kind of peacock, right? Like you're trying to seem like you know, maybe bigger than you are it, without like kind of crossing some sort of, you know, ethical line that, that you right. kind of slept for yourself. So you basically found success by finding this like 
in-between company that allowed you to partner with them. And then they basically are selling your, your tech. Yeah. Yeah. They were like essentially selling it as their strategy to accomplish the, right. the end goal. And then, you know, this was how we, we managed later that year. This was in 2009. We sold our first two studies directly to two large biotech companies. And that was like, I think for, for me, maybe like the first really significant milestone because we knew that in order to grow the business to, you know, kind of get to where we wanted to be, we would have to be able to sell directly to, to pharma companies. And then as you guys scaled and matured, did you continue to partner or did you maintain direct? Yeah, it evolved over time. And although it wasn't necessarily because we wouldn't have kept it going. I think that an indirect channel sale would have been really useful to complement our like direct sales effort. But the, the call it like product category that we were having success with patient recruitment, almost every one of those businesses attempted at some point, every one of the businesses that we partnered with attempted at some point to like reverse engineer our product and take it from us. And that first company ended up becoming like our arch nemesis, maybe like one of the most evil villains in the story. I joke that there's like heroes and villains throughout that, you know, call it 13-ish year journey from start to our final exit anyway. And they were the first one for sure. And where's the name Green Fire come from? That was essentially a word association that JP and Jennifer and I did. And the, the kind of framework that we used was to create name that essentially combined two words. So like an adjective and a noun that could be used as a verb. It's very specific. And so we ended up with green fire. Green was like representative of money. And for some reason, we, we also associate it with life, like life sciences and I don't know, plants for some reason that connected for us. And, and then fire, we had landed on as a result of, you know, burning a hole in your pocket and firing off payments like quickly. And then the truth was that green fire with an F uh, and this is like part of the story that doesn't get told often. Greenfire with an F.com wasn't available. And there was, maybe there still is, a rapper that was based out of someplace in Texas named Greenfire with an F. So we changed it to a PH because we were in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, and that's how we, how, how we named it. I love that. I feel like a lot of times you see people replacing the F with the PH when you're associating anything in Philly. But it's interesting to hear that you're, massive, very successful clinical trial payment company did that swap with the F and the PH. I mean, this was simply because we were trying to come up with something. Yeah. It didn't cost us a bunch of money. So you obviously scaled it over those next 13 years. You mentioned that you had three exits. So when you have three exits for one company, explain that piece. Where in the journey did things start to get interesting? You started to see a lot of success and then you started seeing these opportunities for multiple exits. Yeah. And just a point of clarification, because I don't want to take credit for components that weren't really my active work, but I left that business in my full-time role as CEO in 2016, I think February, 2016. And the rest of the journey was, was driven by Jim Murphy, who is the CEO today. So, you know, I definitely will take credit for the product story and starting that business, but there's a big component of this that is attributed to his work and his team. So with regard to the exits, I mean, we, th I think we thought of them, meaning me and JP and Jennifer as liquidity events. And so, you know, I think Greenfire was like a wildly bootstrapped business and we didn't necessarily know that at the time, but looking back on it, we raised 2.2 million bucks in essentially early investment through mostly through angels. And then first smart capital was the venture firm that we worked with that $2.2 million over time ended up producing nearly $1 billion of enterprise value. And that strikes me as being like one of the most extraordinary storylines in that, in that journey that never really gets talked about. Like that's insane. Yeah. And I'm just going to ask you to repeat that one more time. So for the listeners, they could hear back again. Yeah. The Greenfire, we, we, we raised $2.2 million from investors over three rounds of, of investment. And that $2.2 million, you know, 13 years later had snowballed into nearly $1.1 billion of yeah. enterprise value. 
So when you said three exits, is that a culmination or is that like the latest exit? So three was the first liquidity event happened, I think it was 2012, when Firstmark wanted to own some more stock, but we weren't raising money. And so we essentially did a secondary round where the founders basically sold some of our stock directly to Firstmark, which was our way of, JP and I didn't take a salary for two and a half years. And Jennifer was now a new mother that was working around the clock. She was still working at her sales in her sales role, which is how we paid the bills. And so that initial liquidity event was like our ability to continue on while, although we were like slowly burning out at that point, me and JP were anyway. After that liquidity event, the first one, we, Jennifer came on full time. So that was also her opportunity to, to join the, the business in a full time capacity. Eventually, you know, I think, and I think that most entrepreneurs will, or somebody on like the founding team will reach this point. You know, I think JP and I kind of reached a, you know, kind of a limit with stress and anxiety and we essentially burn out. And that was the point where we ended up doing our recap with a private equity firm where we, and then along with a lot of the other early investors essentially sold our stock or a, a big chunk of our stock to a private equity firm. And then the founders and, and the original investors also kept a, a component of that, that stock for some other future exit. And then at some point, JP left pretty quickly after that recap. Jennifer and I stayed for about a little over a year afterwards until we left. And then the business grew without us in, in day to day role. Jennifer remained on the board until the final exit, but JP and I were, we were. I don't know, living some sort of strange in-between life. And maybe JP's still living that life, actually. <laughs> and how did those roles change? Well, JP and I, J, JP and I were really just tag-alongs, like uh, similar, not, not too dissimilar to how you might think of most like angel investors. We weren't really involved at all in any capacity after we left the business. And then Jennifer was on the board, but I would describe that relationship as difficult and strained. Like we, you know, I think that oftentimes, you know, founders and private equity firms don't get along, it, you know, for probably a bunch of different reasons. And I think that there's also examples of that not being true and, and founders having great example relationships with private equity firms, but it obviously depends on the private equity firm. It depends on the, the individual too. But Jennifer was, you know, she tagged along and she did a great job protecting the minority shareholders, which ended up becoming a really, really stressful job, I think, for her, especially as Greenfire continued to grow. You know, I think at some point we never really expected the, the, the final exit to be as large as it was. But at some point you realize that, whoa, this business is actually getting to be really valuable. And even we even thought that when we thought it was likely only going to be measured in like hundreds of millions of dollars. So when you look back at what do you think led to that success? Like what was that key piece in that journey that you think was so impactful that generated this much value to the business and to the enterprise? That's a good question. You know, I think oftentimes in an early stage company, people, meaning people who are involved with the, the build or maybe people that are like closely surrounding the people that are involved. So maybe spouses, friends, family members. I think that you kind of naturally imagine that there is going to be a moment in time where like these floodgates open and the phones are going to start ringing off the hook with customers calling for orders. At least that's what I experienced. And I've, I've met other startups that also had this experience. And there's probably a lot of people that'll watch this that will think you're nuts. That never happens. And that is my view today. Right. And so I think that the, the creation of that value was a function of a lot of grinding for us. I mean, it wasn't like Facebook or Google, right? Like it was 13 years of just building product, doing sales meetings, closing business, servicing customers and repeating a lot of times over many years. And I would think of it more as like slowly poking holes in a dam, right? And so instead of it just like, bursting open and you suddenly find yourself swimming in customers and value it's really more of a slow trickle but if you poke enough holes in the dam 
eventually you're going to have, you're going to get all the water out from the other side. I guess you could also think of it as like eating an elephant, right? I like the dam analogy better. I think the dam analogy is, is on point because you poke a few holes, you see some traction, but you're still not seeing as much traction as you hoped. And maybe not yeah. realizing that that's ultimately going to achieve something bigger. And I think that we also, it, in this space, so the great thing about, and, and the thing that we enjoyed building Greenfire was that we never really had a competitor. We never had anybody that really threatened us. And I think, and people will ask us, ask us back then, they'll ask me now, like, what's the moat that existed? And really, I think that ultimately I point to the idea that as a vertically integrated payments business in clinical trials, you are essentially bilingual in terms of regulatory compliance, right? So you're navigating clinical research regulation, but you're also navigating fintech regulation. All the other competitors that we ever saw at Greenfire never had built a fintech infrastructure or like owned the financial technology, which was, in my view, ultimately why we could beat them in one form or another, whether it be pricing or product functionality was usually why. And then Greenfire was able to grow slowly, like poking holes, right? And that's part of the reason why we were able to grow to over a billion dollars with only raising 2.2 million. Like we didn't ever have to like throw, you know, 10, 20, $30 million on top of a fire in order to like execute some sort of land grab against three other really worthy competitors, which also ended up being, I think maybe like the core driver of what today I think of as the, the existing product weakness is the lack of competition that they um, experienced. It was like the source of great success but I think it also eliminated the kind of natural dynamic inside like a capitalist ecosystem that drives constant innovation. That's interesting because the key thing in this is the vertically integrated payment businesses and then clinical trials being that industry that you had the, the success with. And I think today you see life sciences exploding, in Philadelphia especially. There's tons of funding. So I'm curious about that piece. Can you tie the success to green fire with the growth of life sciences? Well, I think that one of the geographic benefits that we had with, with green fire was that many, many customers and many other, you know, call it like, you know, tech providers or vendors in the clinical research space had offices in Philadelphia or the suburbs or Princeton or somewhere within driving distance, like AstraZeneca was down. I'm not sure, maybe they still are down in Wilmington. GSK has got a big office in Philadelphia. There's like all sorts of clinical trial or, or pharma companies and, and others all around us. And that was beneficial. I think that, you know, the larger industry and growth inside the industry, which strikes me as being a very macro economic level driver of growth. I don't know. I mean, surely that was, it contributed to some part of our growth, but really I think the hard part early on was getting a risk averse, conservative regulated industry to try new technology. And so we were, we were very much a evangelical sale early on. And we really were just searching for early adopters, like the the companies and the individuals who were inclined or, or predisposed to do new stuff. And you'd find one. And eventually, as you found more and more early adopters, you would qualify to get a deal or, or win a piece of business from a middle adopter. And then you, you, know, you continue to just grind it out. And eventually you end up having like a, a a pretty large business, but, but I never paid attention to like industry growth. And I don't know if that ever was really relevant because as a small business or like a startup, you don't have to have like meaningful penetration into a large industry in order to drive really meaningful growth for your, for your business. That's like a, that's like a really big, mature, scaled up businesses problem that I think, I don't know if I've ever had to deal with that. So you had all the success in the clinical trial business, in the fintech space, right? Around vertically integrated payment systems. Post Greenfire, now you're building this company, Mural Health. So what is Mural Health? So I've been describing it when I talk to 
people in our industry as a continuation of my work as a product person, my work at Greenfire. And so this is like a second version or like a next generation participant payment solution that essentially modernizes the way that research sites can execute payment, participants can receive payment, and then and then complements the payment functionality with more interesting, robust, beneficial feature sets that make it easy for a participant. And, and those feature sets are largely relevant because of modern tech and, you know, the acceptance of mobile applications in 2023 that, you know, this was not how the world operated back in 2008 to 2012. It was wildly different. And after having a successful exit with Green Fire, building the company to where it was, what made you want to get back into the game, especially in the clinical trial business? I never thought that I would start another business. And if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have told you that there is no way that I would ever start another business in the clinical trial space. It seemed like too much work, too difficult. That's, that's how I viewed it. I think ultimately the motive for starting Greenfire and the motive for starting neural health are, are entirely different. Like the driver is entirely different. And I think that, I think that when we started Greenfire, I think it was largely money motivated, right? Like we had some like pretty like humble origin stories and we were trying to create security for our families. Like it was, it was like a simple, simple, you know, motive for mural health. My co-founder Jason asked me if I would start this business with him. And I was reluctant at first, mostly because, you know, I, I expected it to be as difficult as it was the first time. But eventually, as I like took inventory of, you know, kind of my purpose, I ended up finding like a new motive and it was largely around people. And that comes in the form of working environment, culture, financial opportunity. And then outside of the employees, I'm also really interested in, in just seeing what kind of reach we can have in the clinical research space and the clinical R&D space. When during COVID, I think nearly every clinical trial trying to bring a vaccine to market was using the ClinCard. And I think my wife and I were talking about that one night and and I was just reflecting on how cool that was. I was like, that's so cool. And my, my kids who were younger, obviously, than they are now overheard this. And they said to me, they said, dad, did you say that you are responsible for creating the COVID vaccine? And I was like, you know, we started laughing, but you know, I think that it was, it was just in that moment that you, you realize that there are a lot of benefits to participating, even in a small way. And that is what we built at Greenfire oh, okay. that, that they're using. But we think there's a better way now. So you mentioned that the capabilities and features maybe didn't exist previously with modern day tech. Could you go into a little bit of what those capabilities that exist today can now improve the experience going forward? Yeah, the you know two of the high level obvious differences between the Neuralink platform and ClinCard were that ClinCard really just allowed participants to receive payment via debit card, prepaid debit card. It was a, at least when I was there, it was an instant issue prepaid debit card. Today, our, our platform allows participants to choose how they receive payment, which at the moment includes PayPal, Venmo, direct deposit by ACH. Similarly, we can put money in your bank account by pushing to your debit card. So using your debit card information to put in your bank account. Um, and then check. And then later this year, we will bring to the product Zelle. And these are US. Functionality differs country to country. We haven't brought to market a prepaid card yet because we see it as only being useful for unbanked individuals, which is now about 4.5% in the US and even less than that in clinical trials because the populations that are typically unbanked are generally not proportionately represented in clinical trials. Since it's really addresses like the, the outlier or the edge case today, we also don't see it as being an effective way of driving patient retention or protocol compliance or some of the other values that we're trying to create. Cause there's a lot of um, different points of friction with a prepaid debit card, including fees to the patient. So if you, you know, if you spend 50 bucks to get to your clinical research site visit, 
and you need to get a $50 reimbursement. It seems pretty, I don't know, unfair if a prepaid debit card business takes some portion of that $50 from you. That was your money that you, you outlaid to participate. They do the you know, same thing would, would, would happen with a stipend, but I think a reimbursement's a little bit more offensive. This was really the only option back in 2008. Like, you know, PayPal existed, but, you know, mobile payments and electronic payments were something that we were speculating about in the future. Venmo didn't exist. I was around in Philadelphia when Venmo was created. It was, you know, it was a cool idea, but, you know, it wasn't like it is today. You said you guys launched last January. Mm-hmm. Right. So being a year and a half into this, how do you see your go to market approach maybe differing or being similar to what it was before and those lessons that you saw there kind of applying it to now? Yeah. I mean, one thing that we haven't really talked about is the differences in starting uh, Greenfire back in 2007, 2008, and my experience starting Mural Health in 2022. The, you know, I think my expectation that this was going to be as hard and painful as it was with Greenfire when, when Jason brought this up to me the first time, I was way off and, and completely wrong. It is way easier this time than it was the first time. It's also a lot more fun if I'm you know, being honest, but that's probably a function of it being easier and easier in just about every way. So raising money is crazy easy. Building the product. I have a very clear like view on product functionality where, you know, in when I, when I built the clean card, it was a matter of trial and error and, you know, kind of messing up and, and fixing and iterating. And then the accessibility that I have this second time around is I, I didn't appreciate the benefit that I would have as a function of like the 15 years in prior in the space. So if we need to get in touch with an influential decision maker, whether it's at a sponsor or a CRO or at another e-clinical business. Oftentimes it's a matter of me sending a text message and I usually get a response pretty quickly. And that is, that still like kind of blows my mind because I'm like programmed to expect this to be a wildly painful grind. And so we, we started in January, 2022, but we didn't launch the product until November or December of last year. But in that time, so it's been like, what, six or seven months, we've built a sales pipeline that's easily 10 times the size that we built the first year at Greenfire. And the, and we've never, we haven't had to sell indirectly like we did originally. We are selling directly to pharma companies. We are qualifying as vendors and we are getting opportunities. I think in large part, the buyers a lot of them know me either personally or they know the story and they have a level of trust in my ability to build a product that that works. And then the ones that have worked with me before, and there's been a couple, get a sense for the type of culture or service that they'll they'll get to. And and that's just all been a huge advantage for us. I think that also goes to the fact, I mean, when people talk about some investment criteria or thesis of VCs. They talk about second time founders or repeat founders, right? So when you're a second time founder and you're building a similar company, right? I mean, it's it's for that exact reason why people want to invest second time founders. And I'm curious about though is when you're on this kind of this second journey building a company like this, how are you finding product market fit? Because it's almost like you already have it before even starting. It's like nuanced maybe, but uh, I know that there's a product market fit because of the, because of the green fire story, right? I think that this is more, I think this year in particular, right? Like the first year was standing up a, a company, launching an MVP and getting a first customer and then raising some money, which we did all, did all of those things. The second year, we're very much focused on achieving what I think of as commercial proof of concept. So we built build a product. Now we have to go out and, and make sure that people will buy it, right? Like, and, and that we can deliver it well. And this is a little bit different. Like, I think that we still sit in maybe the same product category, at least in this early stage. But this is really more of a test to see if the differences in this new product versus the old one. And, and my the- theory or thesis around what the industry could benefit from in 
you know, this next gen platform if the industry agrees with that. And so I think that as we've been traveling through this year, you know, we were building sales pipeline, building sales pipeline, but nothing was converting. And this was as of like April. And I think that we started to get nervous like you would, you know, three or four months to, you know, as a sales cycle for a new business in clinical trials really isn't a ton of time. So it didn't strike, you know, I was still getting a little anxious, but it also wasn't too long. And then in May and June, pipelines started converting. A bunch of it did. And I think that as we start to get wins and we start to get collect feedback from potential customers, I think you start to collect data points, right? And you start to, at least for us, we start to get more and more confident about commercial proof of concept. And I think the investors probably measure it a little bit differently and they measure it probably in terms of logos acquired and repeat business and bookings, probably total contract value sold. I think for me, I am confident that I'll get to those metrics because of the feedback that we get from customers. So I'm curious to get your thoughts now as you look more into the clinical trial space and what's next for Mural Health. What are those industry trends that maybe right? You were there 15 years ago. Now you're looking at a different place and a different kind of time period. Customers are now reacting differently to different things. There's different opportunities to seize. What are those trends that you see that may take place, right? In the next five, six, seven years that you think Mira Health can take advantage of? I have a really clear view on the opportunity ahead for our product set and how that probably evolves, regardless of how the industry as a whole evolves, you know, and I think that if you, you know, I think that the Greenfire's product story and Mural Health's product story, even within the build at Greenfire is almost like representative of my evolution as a product person too, from their clean card to their e-clinical GPS. And then some of the product strategy that, that I thought through back in 2014, but like back, back in that business, we very much were thinking about how can we expand payment functionality to other types of payments in clinical trials? So we went from participant payments to site payments, and then we started to build out products that were complementary to those the, those two core products. But those those two products, in in my opinion, they're both payment related, but they have different users. They have different value propositions. Like they're they're different in a lot of ways. At Mural Health, we're very much focused on participants, patients and caregivers, and having an impact on, call it like the front office of clinical trials. We are using payments as a strategic way to get our momentum going. But the long-term like product vision for this platform is not payment-centric. And we will always ha- use payments, I think, strategically as a as a way to authentically engage with individuals, but how it, how it evolves is like a little bit up in the air still, but there is, you know, there, there is a long list of feature sets that we have in a product roadmap for clinical trials. And there, there's probably a, a number of scenarios where we're able to bring these feature sets, maybe in different forms to other parts of healthcare that sit beyond clinical trials. So when you think about Philly as a whole, you mentioned the beginning, green fire, switch the F to PH because you guys were building in, in Philly. You're now building your second company in Philly. What has that been like in your experience being a founder in Philly and building these companies here? I love Philadelphia in like a very genuine way. Like I can't, I can never, I can never get away from this place. And we've moved a couple of times, but always come back. And it doesn't make any sense on paper, but I'm not sure that like, you know, I think from, for, in my, from my point of view, I'm not sure that building a company here is necessarily advantageous or disadvantageous in, you know, in current day. And maybe that's like, maybe I've got a different view on the world as a result of my past experience, but, you know, most of my work gets done in my home office. You know, we, we're, our company is small still, but we're distributed. There's a lot of people in Philadelphia, but, you know, I think I have a network here and there's access to service professionals, lawyers, accountants, things like that, maybe research sites, connectivity at Penn or CHOP, things like that that are beneficial. 
but I'm not so, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's not, I don't know if it's any different than if we were in some other, you know, call it like, uh, you know, Philadelphia equivalent city. That said, I, I think that it's like wildly different and more comfortable for me building in Philadelphia than it would be in New York or San Francisco. And I think that I definitely benefit from the green fire experience. And I probably benefit more in Philadelphia than I would in New York or San Francisco. It would still be a good outcome in both of those places, but I'd probably be one of a larger pool of, of people that had done the same. So I wouldn't get maybe the, the advantage that we get as a company here. For those that are building in Philly, what are those lessons learned that you look back on? Well, I think that starting off, we made a lot of bad decisions in terms of, I don't know, partners, marketing firms. We never really had a lawyer problem, although we did change lawyers a couple of times. There's a lot of like fakers out there, right? Like, like, you know, people that you shouldn't work with and you just don't know any better, right? And this is going to be true anywhere. I think that starting off, if you've never built a company before, like try to find an advisor, somebody that has or can help you steer clear of one of the many people that is going to try to, you know, essentially extract the capital that exists on your balance sheet for their benefit, but not really providing you any anything. There's so many mistakes that I made the first time around that we're not making now. But one big mistake that we made early was we hired one developer who was a bad hire. And he ultimately essentially held the company hostage about four weeks before we were supposed to launch with our first customer, Medtronic. And he asked for like some crazy raise and options grant. And he wanted to head off three afternoons during the summer so he could coach like peewee football. And no, I'm, I'm not making that up either. That's like, I can remember this clear as day. And so we didn't have like a redundancy there. So we made a bad hire, but we also didn't have like a backup plan in the event that you know, he got hit by a bus or something like he held the company hostage. And we managed to navigate that problem and, and hire, we hired Sean Malochik, who now is a co-founder of Mural Health. And he got up to speed really fast. That first developer quit maybe a week or two after Sean started, but we ended up launching with that first customer and everything was fine in the end. It was really stressful. And today Sean is, you know, 15 years later, he's now a co-founder of this business. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining. Really enjoyed hearing your story from Green Fire until all the great work you're doing now with Mural Health. Really incredible to see the success and impact that you've had in Philly and building these companies and really looking forward to what's next for you at Mural Health. Cool. Thanks for having me. 